we're talking about following, and uh, I have to confess to you that it's never been my strong suit. I, I was not much of a follower as a kid, even at, uh, even at church. I was the kid that didn't want to booster, booster, be a booster, and boost my Bible school. I uh, uh, grew up in a neighborhood where I was kind of the oldest kid in my little friend group, and so I was always the one leading activities and coordinating projects and starting clubs and building forts, and uh, so I was always leading. And I have been uh, known for much of my life to uh, not follow the prescribed path in front of me. And uh, I don't say that with, with pride particularly. As a matter of fact, I would say that a, a good deal of the time it has cost me dearly being this stubborn and, and uh, uh, having this sort of hubris about me. But uh, it makes me wonder when we think about the big question of following Jesus and, 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 the, and the question that's asked of the first disciples when they're approached by Jesus, when he comes to them and asks them to follow him. If we were in that position, if we were asked to follow Jesus, uh, what, what would we do? What would we say? Are, are we the kind of people that would get up and follow him or are we the kind of people who are a little more stubborn and, and would resist that? In Matthew 4, uh, sorry, the verse 18, it says that Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee. He saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting nets into the lake for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Now I read that very familiar passage, and I think that is a remarkable reaction. I don't know if I would have that reaction. It's remarkable to me that Jesus comes to them, and I don't know how much experience they'd had with Jesus up to that point, but it's remarkable to me, regardless, that in that instance, he says, come and follow me, they drop what they're doing, and they follow him. You understand the significance of that? They don't say, oh, we'll, let it, we'll finish up, and then we'll come. They don't, they don't say, what are you talking about? They just drop what they're doing, and they follow him. Would I do that? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that's why Jesus asked them. Maybe he knew in, in advance, I'm sure he knew in advance what their response would be. Maybe, that, maybe he chose them because they were the kind of people who would drop what they were doing and follow. Or maybe there were others who were asked but couldn't make that decision. Certainly there were those who came along later in Jesus' ministry who expressed an interest in following him, who once they learned the details, decided that they couldn't. Or they couldn't then. They're waiting for it to get easy. And I think a lot, of, a lot of people in our world today, a lot of Christians even, when we think about following Jesus, we think about actually being disciples of Jesus, we're waiting for that to somehow get easy. We're waiting to reach that point where, where it just the, 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 the complications, the difficulties fade away and it just becomes an easy choice to make. And American Christianity honestly has been built largely on this premise. 
that there is this thing that we need to fear, this hell, this damnation, this fate that we, we that is a terrible fate and we desperately want to avoid it, and on the other side is this incredibly easy choice. It's just kind of a no-brainer. Fear motivates us. There's no question about it. But fear motivates us only as far as is required in order to alleviate that fear. In other words, fear doesn't motivate us to do anything proactive. Fear doesn't motivate us to go above and beyond. Fear doesn't motivate us to relationship or to journey. It just motivates us to do something to alleviate that which makes us fearful. And so we have a Christianity in, in the West that has been largely built upon this assumption that there is something to be afraid of, and I just need to do whatever it is I need to do in order to not have to be afraid of that anymore. And that's why being a disciple of Jesus, being a follower of Jesus, has become almost optional to Christianity in the Western world. But the call, the call of Scripture, is to follow Jesus. The call of the Great Commission is to follow Jesus. It's almost like we're trying to own Jesus. You know, like I, uh, uh, I own a lot of Bibles. It's something, you know, over the years as a minister, you sort of accumulate all these different versions and different study Bibles and all this. So I have a, I have a couple of shelves at home that are just full of Bibles. And I'll be honest with you, I don't pull them off the shelf all that much anymore. I've gone so digital that I rarely uh, have to go and, you know, physically pick up a, a, a book and look through cross-references and all that stuff like I used to do. But I have that whole shelf of Bibles, and I sit and look at that shelf, and I think, is that shelf a measure of my faithfulness? Well, no, of course not. Because the reality is, I could have a whole shelf of Bibles. I could have that giant Bible. You know, back when people had coffee tables, do you remember coffee table Bibles? My family had a coffee table Bible. It was huge, had beautiful pictures in it. You know, it's a, us kids like to thumb through it. It's enormous. Does it say anything about my family's faithfulness? No, not particularly. Because you can own that and not use it. Christ in Western Christianity sometimes becomes this thing that we own, but that we do not employ, we do not use. And like a Bible on the shelf, the sacred cure that's sitting right in front of us, that we have access to, that we, we in some sense possess, we're not using. And so... Paul reveals to us this is not a new problem in our study of Colossians so far. If we were to summarize in broad strokes what we have studied in Colossians thus far, here's the big themes. First of all, the supremacy of Jesus is manifest. It's just a way of saying Jesus is the answer. That, that, is, that is trite, that is oversimplified, but that is the truth that Paul is pointing us to, that Jesus is the answer. 
and that he is the comprehensive answer. He is the answer not just to religious matters, not just to spiritual matters, but to everything in your life. His supremacy is a priority for everything. And his supremacy is obvious. All it takes for you to recognize that Christ is supreme is to go looking for it. That truth will reveal itself to you. It is the obvious case. But, Paul says, the deception of humanity is virtually inevitable. That the mind of man is so easily taken captive by deceptive philosophy. We get off the path. We, we lose our way because there are so many uh, bad ideas floating around and they settle into our minds and into our hearts and they get us going off in the wrong direction and we make a mess of things. We've talked a lot during this series about the different ways, the different vain philosophies that we tend to adopt, the different ways that we lose the path. And I know some of you are probably thinking, man, you, you and Caleb are uh, pretty negative about the church, pretty negative about modern Christianity. Why are you even doing the job that you do? Uh, the reality, though, from is, I think as a matter of perspective, the reality is we're both incredible optimists. We have seen churches fail continuously. We have seen Christians miss the point most churches in this country right now are struggling. Most small churches in rural communities are trying to figure out how to not close their doors permanently. And we have this optimistic idea that God actually wants to do something in this place remarkable. There's an incredible optimism to that. But we also understand what Paul says here. That is, that these empty philosophies, these deceptions, they are ever-present, and they creep into our thinking. They creep into our, our actions, our traditions. Everything is susceptible to this. And if you sit still long enough, if you become comfortable with the way that you're doing things, that comfort will mask from you the deception that has crawled in and taken up residence. And I don't just mean things that we've been doing for 20 years. We have to be reevaluating things we've been doing for 20 weeks. Is that, really, is that really the direction that we need to go? Is that really where Christ is calling us to? Or have we inserted our own will into this and supplanted his will with our own? Because following Jesus is not rhetorical. One of the major themes in Colossians. Following Jesus is this is this is this is not just a saying. This is not just what we say that we do. There is a risk because of these empty philosophies that we can flavor our life, flavor our homes, even our churches with Jesus. We can listen to Christian radio, we can watch Christian movies, we can read Christian books. We can wear Christian t-shirts and put Christian bumper stickers on our car, and we can do all of this. We can even do church without actually following Jesus. 
Because following Jesus is more than a figure of speech. It is a fundamental shift in the way that we think, the way that we perceive the world, and the way that we act. And like the would-be disciples who approached Jesus back in ancient times, who left Jesus unable to take the leap of faith that he asked of them, we often find that following, in principle, is a great idea. Following in practicality is harder than it sounds. Harder than it looks. Paul, starting where we are in the middle of chapter 3, Paul suggests the impact that the supremacy of Jesus Christ is going to have on various aspects of our life. And he does this in list form. He doesn't, in Colossians, uh, spend much time on any one item. And so we're going to borrow from some of his other letters and from the teachings of Jesus to try to unpack these things and understand them better. But understand this, following Jesus sounds good. All of us would say that we're in favor of following Jesus. That, that is, that as Christians, that's something we, we would all ag agree. That's something we should be doing. And then we come, we read through Colossians, and Paul says in verse 18 of chapter 3, he says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Oh, why? Did you have to go there? Paul, what is your problem? This was a really good dissertation up to this moment. You've messed it all up. Why did you go there? This doesn't sound good, especially if you're a wife. Maybe to some of the husbands it sounds all right, but if you're a wife, it doesn't sound that good. This is not very woke of Paul. Not very politically correct. If we're just completely honest, it sounds a little bit sexist. And some people would say that that's exactly what the New Testament is. The truth is that even Christians tend to be uncomfortable with passages like this one, and yet there it is. There it is in big letters. But submission, of course, doesn't just come up when we're talking about wives in Scripture. It comes up constantly. We're supposed to, uh, we're supposed to submit to God. I guess that one makes sense. Submit to Jesus. We're supposed to uh, submit to our church leaders, our spiritual leaders. We're supposed to submit to uh, human laws and our human governors, and we're even supposed to submit to one another. And that last one is confusing, particularly given the way that we typically understand what submission is. How is it that we submit to one another? Because we tend to understand submission in terms of subservience or inferiority. And so how is it that you and I can be inferior to each other at the same time? How does that work? We all imagine that there is some imaginary hierarchy here employed and that somehow somebody's got to be higher than someone else. 
Well, before we can really examine what Paul is saying here to wives, doesn't it make sense that we just get the whole idea of submission right? Particularly since it's universal, since it applies to all of us. And I honestly, I don't think we get it right most of the time. I don't think the world gets it right by any means. I don't think Christians get it right most of the time. I don't think we understand this concept very well at all. Here's what you need to get. Submission is an active and powerful choice. Submission is simply the act of making myself subject to another person. Now, there's basically two ways that you can be subject to another person. You can be subject to another person because you have no choice or you've been coerced into being subject to that person. Or you can be subject to another person because you choose to be subject to another person. Now, the problem that we have is that the end result, being subject to another person, looks pretty much the same. But how you got there, as it turns out, matters a great deal. Because submission is an active verb that is taking place within the individual who is submitting. We often use this in culture. It's been actually this word submit has been thrown around in the news a lot lately. People are trying to force us to submit to different policies. That's actually a bit of a misnomer. You cannot be forced to submit. The more coerced your decision is, the less submission is involved in it. Because submission is an active, powerful choice on your part. Submission means that you have the option of not submitting. It means that that is within your power to do. If you're going to submit, it is your, your choice, your option. Philippians chapter 2, Paul says this about Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. This is the core of Christian submission. This is the whole idea. It is not that Jesus is inferior in any way. It is not that he is powerless in the situation. It's not that submission is his only option. As a matter of fact, it is the most surprising option that he could choose because he is all-powerful. He does not have to go down this road. He does not have to follow this path. This does not have to be his fate. He chooses it for a reason. He acts out of a position of having options. And he extends these same options to us. Following Jesus is the way, it is the cure, the very fact that we can choose not to take the cure, not to follow the way, demonstrates the fact that we have the option to not submit. Now, it won't work out. It'll work out very poorly, let's say that. It's going to be a disaster. And at some point, this option evaporates. And whatever choice you've made, that's the choice you're stuck with. 
But in the here and now, he invites us to submit, but he does not force us. Paul goes on, of course, it says, because Jesus did submit to this plan. He has been raised up in glory, and at some point, every knee will bow because the supremacy of Jesus is manifest. But now, in this moment, he continues to extend to us a choice. Second Peter. Chapter 3 says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Under Some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. To repent, to turn your back on the old life, turn your back on your earthly nature, and follow him. See, submission is at the heart of, of following Jesus. It is the definition, really. It's part of the nature of our faith. So now we have the what of submission. How about the why? There's basically three reasons that we practice submission. And specifically this morning, we want to look at the example of Christ because he's going to be the perfect example of what submission means in every case. Paul says, Christ humbled himself even unto death for our redemption. So the first of these three reasons for submission is to support a worthy task or goal. I want you to think about that for a minute. This is, this is for all of us, Christian or not, this is the most common reason that we submit. Why do we submit to government, even when we don't like what government does, even when we don't particularly like uh, maybe our elected leader, maybe he's not the, the person that we voted for? Why do we submit to government in general? Why do we pay our taxes? Well, because we recognize that the government has a job to do, has a task to perform. So we submit to the extent that they are performing that task and we have a responsibility to support them in it. Why do I submit if a police officer pulls me over? I might not feel like that he's justified in pulling me over. Do I know him? Probably not. Do I know what his character is? Do I know if he's an honest guy? Do I know if he pulled me over because he didn't like the cut of my jib or didn't like my vehicle or I don't know? Generally speaking, I'm going to submit to the officer that pulled me over because I recognize he has a job to do. I'm assuming he's doing the best he can in that difficult job. This is the most common reason that we practice submission. But this submission confers no value. doesn't say that another person is better or worse than me. doesn't mean that at all. It simply means... I recognize they have a job to do, and I'm going to stay out of their way so that they can do their job successfully. Also embedded in this, because of uh, some of Paul's words in Romans 13, is this appreciation for the fact that God puts people in positions of authority 
himself, that he establishes them in these positions. And so we submit to these authorities not necessarily out of respect for them, but out of respect for God who has established them. And yet, in that same chapter, Paul outlines their purpose, the things that God has established them to do. And we all recognize that sometimes people in positions of power and authority act well outside of their worthy purposes. And so Paul challenges the Romans, Roman Christians, to submit themselves to government authorities to pay their taxes and be good citizens. But at the same time, the early church stands in rebellion against certain policies of the Roman Empire, refuses to serve in its military, for instance, refuses to participate in its cultural activities, because they're immoral, because they're broken, because they don't fit into these divine purposes, these worthy tasks. We recognize, of course, that sometimes people in authority, even though we submit to them in general, we stand up to them when their authority enforces immorality. Christ himself submits himself to the law of Moses during his ministry and yet refuses to submit, actually makes a point of refusing to submit to the traditions of men that have grown up around those laws. It's important for us to understand that this idea of submission in Scripture is not a universal, it's not just a switch that we flip and we're either submissive or not. It is a choice made from a position of option. Submission is more nuanced than we sometimes give credit. But if we're not submitting uh, because of a worthy task or a worthy role that someone has, then we may be submitting in order to honor one who is worthy. Some people we follow simply because they deserve to be followed. Not only do they have a worthy task, a worthy role, but they have demonstrated consistency and character and morality that is suited to that task. Not only do we follow them because of their worthy goal, but because they've demonstrated themselves in some capacity to be worthy. Jesus refers to the Father as the only true good, even though he's a part of the Father, in his earthly ministry as a human being, he defers to the Father. So in John chapter 5, verse 19, he says, Very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. Jesus puts on this humanity, and in his humanity, he submits himself completely to the will of God. He is our example of what it looks like to submit to something or someone worthy. He's also our example because he's the only one who will ever be worthy all the time. 
If a wife is, in fact, to submit to her husband, then we counsel anyone looking for a husband to find someone worthy of submitting to. It's a good general principle. However, she knows and he knows that he will not always be that person. No matter how good he is, no matter how mature and forthright and honest, he will not always be worthy. And so, sometimes we practice submission in order to invite someone to be worthy. This is part of why this idea, this concept is so important to, to the gospel. It's so important and powerful. Submission is such a powerful idea because submission can enable someone in their task, but it can also invite someone to rise to that task. Jesus gets up, stands up, the Passover meal, walks over, puts a towel around his waist, gets a bowl of water and starts washing his disciples' feet. Does he have to do it? No. Does the hierarchy of his day suggest that he should do it? No. Does he do it because he's required to be submissive to his own disciples? No. He makes a choice out of a position of option to demonstrate what submission looks like. They're not even sure they want it. Peter tries to refuse it. But he says to them, do you see what I've done? Do this for each other. Be this for each other. In submission, Christ invites his followers to live lives worthy of what he has done. That's one of the key messages in Colossians. Go all the way back to the first chapter of Colossians, Colossians 1.10, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. We don't even often aspire to such a thing because we, we were already decided, we already know we're never going to be worthy. But Paul says that's the objective. That's why I want you to get this. That's why I want you to understand the supremacy of Jesus. That's why I want you to come into this relationship. That's why I want you to submit yourselves to it because this is what's going to empower you and enable you to live a life worthy of what Christ has already done for you. Submission is not passive. Submission is a proactive choice in favor of holiness. In favor of sacred things. And so when we recognize the holiness of God, when we recognize the holiness of Christ, when we recognize that the church is sacred and that truth is sacred and that life is sacred and that our homes are sacred and that marriage is sacred. Coming under the authority, the supremacy of Jesus, 
reshapes our understanding of everything else. Now, the world around us basically promotes the message that nothing is sacred. That all of these things can be redefined on our whims, that we can just make up out of whole cloth new ideas, new definitions, new moralities by which we will live. Colossians says Christ is sacred. Everything that Christ created is sacred. The way that he is leading us to live life is sacred. This is the cure, the sacred cure for everything about this life that is as broken as it is. But you're going to have to come into it. You're going to have to step into it. You're going to have to follow. Scripture tells us that the cure for the brokenness that we know is going to be found in sacred things. So in essence, following, following is the righteous response to the sacred. When we encounter sacred things, we understand that they are holy. We understand that they come directly from God. Following those things is the righteous response. It is the reasonable response. It's the only one that even makes any sense. If Jesus really is the way, if he really does have all of the answers, if, if, if the order of creation that he established is the order that will make sense of life, then how could it possibly make sense for us to cast it aside? If Jesus has the answers, if Jesus is the answer, then it only makes sense, it is only righteous that we should follow and understand that there are holy, set-apart things. This is the thing that disturbs me so much, and probably you too, as I, w- as I watch the news these days, that there are holy and set-apart things that the world casts aside as garbage. Now, we as the church, we can spend all our time trying to defend those, by talking about how broken the ideas of the world are. But I think there's a more important task for us. The more important for task for us, rather than, rather than pointing out the brokenness in, of the world, which is fairly easy to do, in all honesty, the more important task for us is to raise up the sacred things of God and point out how perfect and holy they are. When we come under the supremacy of Jesus Christ, we make ourselves subject to sacred things again. And in that subjection, we will discover what true life is. Still I am a soul on fire.